Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. A child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away And he was talking for I knew it And as he grew, he'd say I'm gonna be like you, Dad You know I'm gonna be like you And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when But we'll get together then You know we'll have a good time then Hey there, folks. Happy corporate-sponsored Love Day. As you can probably tell, I'm feeling much better, so I welcome you to this special edition of Science Factual, the show that dives into the facts behind your favorite science fiction. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and for today's episode, we'll be doing a Shady Pines Radio DJ interview with my Valentine and yours, DJ Bob Fish from Inside the Fishbowl with DJ Fish and DJ Chip. That show airs Thursdays at 4 p.m., Today we're going to take a look at the novel Cat's Cradle by sci-fi author Kurt Vonnegut. And I say sci-fi author with emphasis for a reason, but we'll get into that a little bit later. For this version, we'll just be rocking the interview segment featuring DJ Bob Fish and Little Nuggets of Gold from everybody's favorite... human? It's Poor Boy from the Soju Hour. That show airs Sundays at 4pm. It's a good old-fashioned Shady Pines literary throwdown. However, as per usual, before we jump too far into things, here's a spoiler alert, spoiler alert, because we're going to riff on a synopsis of the novel and discuss themes and plot points, so consider yourself spoiled by this alert. Besides, for all the juicy facts, you'll want to check out the extended version of this episode that's going to drop on Spotify and Apple Podcasts tomorrow. Also, lest we not forget that the holiest of holidays is upon us, no, not All Hallows' Eve, nay, tis the third annual Shady Pines fundraiser. Why don't we hear all about how you can keep us on the air? February is here, and so is our yearly fundraiser. We know you have an overwhelming amount of choices these days, so we are thrilled that you include us when it comes to your daily listening habits. Unlike computer-based services, we provide a personally crafted listening adventure, as well as shows on local music and unique talk, interview, and comedy shows found nowhere else. We love bringing you this content from our homes to yours, and we do this for free. But websites, app development, and music licensing isn't free, so we need your donations. During our fundraiser, February 11th through the 19th, for every $10 you donate, you receive a Pine Coin. That's your ticket to possibly win one of dozens of amazing prizes from amazing local businesses. The more you donate, the more chances you get at winning. So show us some love this week. Click on that donate button and give during our fundraiser and maybe win some cool stuff. Heck yeah, dude, you know we love and appreciate all you supporters, listeners, and downright groovy folk out there. So keep on being groovy and rad and such while we get into this background behind the novel and author. 
Cat's Cradle is not only a game involving the creation of various string figures between the fingers, either individually or by passing a loop of string back and forth between two or more players, but it is more notably a satirical postmodern novel with science fiction elements by American writer Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut's fourth novel, it was published in 1963, exploring and satirizing issues of science, technology, the purpose of religion, and the arms race, often through the use of black humor. After turning down his original thesis in 1947, the University of Chicago awarded Vonnegut his master's degree in anthropology in 1971 for Cat's Cradle. The first-person everyman narrator, a professional writer introducing himself as Jonah, but apparently named John, frames the plot as a flashback. Set in the mid-20th century, the plot revolves around a time when he was planning to write a book called The Day the World Ended about what people were doing on the day of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Throughout, he also intersperses meaningful as well as sarcastic passages and sentiments from an odd religious scripture known as the Books of Bokanon. The events of the novel evidently occur before the narrator was converted to his current religion, Bokanonism. While researching for his upcoming book, the narrator travels to Ilium, New York, the hometown of the late Felix Honecker, a co-creator of the atomic bomb and Nobel laureate physicist, to interview Honecker's children, co-workers, and other acquaintances. There, he learns of a substance called Ice-9, created for military use by Honecker and now likely in the possession of his three adult children. Ice-9 is an alternative structure of water that is solid at room temperature and acts as a seed crystal upon contact with ordinary liquid water, causing that liquid water to instantly freeze and transform into more Ice-9. The second half of the novel gets into the events that take place on the island of San Lorenzo, but I'll save those details for the interview segment. Many of Vonnegut's recurring themes are prevalent in Cat's Cradle, most notably the issues of free will and man's relation to technology. The former is embodied in the creation of Bokanonism, an artificial religion created to make life bearable to the beleaguered inhabitants of the island of San Lorenzo through acceptance and delight in the inevitability of fate. The latter is demonstrated by the development and exploitation of Ice-9, which is conceived with indifference but is misused to disastrous ends. Spoiler alert. In his 1969 address to the American Physical Society, Vonnegut describes the inspiration behind Ice-9 and its creator as the type of old-fashioned scientist who isn't interested in people and draws connections to nuclear weapons. The inspiration for Ice-9, that's the form of ice that's stable at room temperature, came indirectly from Nobel laureate Irving Langmuir. However, Langmuir had originally pitched the idea to H.G. Wells, who he was touring around the General Electric Laboratories in the 1930s, who declined to use it in his fictions. The idea was later remembered by Langmuir's junior colleague at GE, Bernard Vonnegut, who later mentioned it to his younger brother, Kurt, who became a publicist for GE in 1947. Vonnegut later recalled, quote, and then Wells died, and then finally Langmuir died. I thought to myself, finders keepers, the idea is mine. Adding his own flair to the story from there, Vonnegut developed a subplot pertaining to the semi-humorous religion secretly practiced by the people of San Lorenzo called Bokanonism, encompassing concepts unique to the novel. Many of these concepts use words from the San Lorenzan Creole dialect of English, Many of its sacred texts, collectively called the Books of Bokanon, are written in the form of calypso songs. I wanted all things to seem to make some sense So we could all be happy, yes, instead of tense And I made up lies so that they all fit nice And I made this sad world 
a paradise. Bokanonis rituals are equally strange or absurdist. For example, the supreme religious act consists of any two worshippers rubbing the bare soles of their feet together to inspire spiritual connection. Here are some Bokanonis terms, for example. A karas is a group of people linked in a cosmically significant manner, even when superficial linkages are not evident. A dupras is a karas of only two people, who almost always die within a week of each other. The typical example is a loving couple who work together for a great purpose. A grand faloon is a false karas, i.e. a group of people who imagine they have a connection that does not really exist. An example is Hoosiers. Hoosiers are people from Indiana, and Hoosiers have no true spiritual destiny in common. They really share little more than a name. A wampeter is the central theme or purpose of a karas. Uh, each karas has two wampeters at any given time, one waxing and one waning. And then we have what's known as a foma, which is a harmless untruth, otherwise known as a royal lie. The full list of terms is available on the Wikipedia page detailing the novel, which, as far as Wikipedia pages go, this one is tops. More topically, Cat's Cradle takes the threat of nuclear destruction in the Cold War as a major theme. The Cuban Missile Crisis, in which world powers collided around a small Caribbean island, bringing the world to the brink of mutually assured destruction, occurred in 1962, and much of the novel can be seen as allegorical to that scenario. After the Sirens of Titan in 1959 and Mother Night in 1962 received favorable reviews and sold well in paperback, large publisher Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston issued Cat's Cradle as a hardcover original. Theodore Sturgeon praised Cat's Cradle, describing its storyline as, quote, appalling, hilarious, shocking, and infuriating, and concluded that, this is an annoying book, and you must read it, and you better take it lightly, because if you don't, you'll go off weeping and shoot yourself. Cat's Cradle was nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1964, up against novels like Glory Road by Robert A. Heinlein, and the winner from that year, Here Gather the Stars, also known as Waystation by Clifford D. Simak. Haven't read either of those, but I do love me some Heinlein. Alrighty folks, enough with the facts. Let's get on to the FOMA and enjoy this interview with DJ Bobbert Fishingsworth from Outside the Fishbowl, not a cult member. Ours is a land where the living is grand And the men are as fearless as sharks The women are pure And we always are sure That our children will all toe their marks San San Lorenzo What a rich lucky island are we Our enemies quail for they know they will fail against people so reverent and free. And that's a great lake. You don't want any money? I want anyone not asking for any money. I'll hope it comes, but I think sure you might have to do the same. Do you want any money? Any money? I don't want any money. Fucking Beverly Hills Cop. Mm. Bulletproof. Mm. The one with Steve Larkman. Uh, the jerk. That free ring doesn't start. Any money? Nick's nuts. I mean, Cat's Trail is a good one, but I, like one of my favorite books was uh, Breakfast of Champions. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the first one I read. I just 
fucking love that one. So that turned me on. I've not read Breakfast of Champions. The only other thing I've read by Vonnegut is Slaughterhouse Five, which I did an episode on for the book report, which is a sub podcast, two sides factual, but uh, shout out Noah Linsk. And um, he's an interesting writer because like I had to go to the literature section at Pals. I'll put it that way, I guess, you know, like in the literature section? He's not even in the sci-fi section. I guess the, the larger part of his repertoire is the more fiction. Yeah, than science fiction. Yeah, absolutely. But he's always heralded as a science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Like from, I certainly look at him through that lens. Yeah, like his books are definitely not science fiction per se, but he always has like a science fiction part about it. Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get into Vonnegut a little bit more, but folks, the voice you hear other than my own, this is DJ Bob Fish from Shady Pines Radio. Yes, DJ Fish here. Uh, Hi, Bobbert. Hello. Oh, Bobbert. Yes, <laughs> I don't hear very. Often enough, honestly. I've, I've been keeping it in my back pocket very excitedly nice. for the, the last couple of weeks since we've decided to cover Cat's Cradle. And uh, I'm definitely stoked on it because out of the aforementioned Slaughterhouse-Five and this, I would say this is the better novel and also primed better for the screen. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I mean, it has more of a cohesive plot line, I feel, whereas Slaughterhouse-Five is... Like that just jumps time and it's hard to just keep track of, even when you're reading the book. Like, wait, where are we? Yeah, it, it can be. And doesn't that also take place in Ilium, New York? Oh, uh, that's where that's where the optometrist, yeah, uh, is at. I think that is true. I'm pretty sure. I I'm gonna have to look into that. It's been a while since I've. And what is Vonnegut's connection to Ilium? To Ilium, uh, is, and does he have a license to get Ilium? I think. Timequake also happens in Ilium, uh, which is another book where Timequake is an awesome 80s yeah. <laughs> action film that never got made. Oh, that's also, uh, it's a... Uh, What's it again? Timequake? Yeah. Dude, that sounds awesome. It's a Vonnegut book. Oh, it's okay. It's pretty good. Okay. Prison that uh, everybody gets out. And I think it was in it. That sounds pretty, I mean, not rad because that can be dangerous, but... <laughs> Yeah, there is, uh, I, I think there are def definitely, like, characters that go through a lot of his stories, which kind of makes it more like mini-world. KCU, or, or like, like there's, like, an MCU, Marvel Comics Universe, like, yeah, or like, KVU, Kurt Vonnegut Universe. Yeah. Kilgore. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, what's, what's the dude's name who, uh, who Pilgrim comes across while he's convalescing? Oh man, he he's the one who like collects. He's like this the mega fan. That's uh Kilgore. Well, I it's been a while since I've read Slaughterhouse Five. I Same as man, I'm I'm not doing it justice yeah. in my memory center. But again, that has to do with the copious amounts of THC infused treats. Life. <laughs> yeah, THC infused life. Yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. That actually comes with your license here in Oregon. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to equate going out and driving while high. Don't do that, kids. But no, definitely not. No, that's that's something you never do. But you know, live that THC life, knowing that you're likely gonna drive to the end of the block, going to Seven Eleven, just wanting to get a treat. You're like, oh, I can't wait to get home and curl up and read my favorite Kurt Vonnegut novel. Cat's Cradle, my and then, boom, all of a sudden, you've killed an 11-year-old girl. <laughs> that is awful. I, I think, uh, last, well, not the last time I read Slaughterhouse-Five, but uh, one of the first times I did, it was Star Crunch and Mountain Dew, man. Nice. 
Okay. Yeah, the, the, Breakfast of Champions. Yeah, there you go. Breakfast of Champions. Well, so Bob, what's your Instagram? What's the what's the Instagram for your like? Talk about your let's talk about your stuff, man. All right, yeah. So um, we'll talk about Shea Pipes Radio. Yeah, but affiliated real quick. Yeah, yeah. That's why I have the Instagram. Um, so with Shady Pines Radio, I knew Brian played in Chalk before the pandemic and knew him for a couple of years and like nice. Then the pandemic and then he was like, Hey, you want a radio show? And I told him, No, nobody wants to hear what fucking radio show. <laughs> and now I have three shows, but uh the most famous one is Inside the Fish Bowl with DJ Chip. That's my seven year old daughter, almost eight. Jump into the fundraiser. Um, nice. And she's very cool, actually. She's um, pretty fucking funny, man. Yeah. <laughs> she's a rad kid. She's, uh, yeah. Hopefully I'm doing a good job. And I, like, don't like kids. Like, I like, like, my niece and your kid. And, like, that's that's basically it. Like, any other kid, I'm just like, okay, you exist. I think, did you met her at the, uh, yeah. the festival? Um, met her at the festival and the second year anniversary party that you had at your house. Yeah. 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 The DJ party. The DJ party, yeah. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, fucking whirlwind. And uh, that's why I started being a DJ on Shady Pines Radio. Nice. With something to do with her. So, Well, dude, like, when your kid goes to college, you'll be like, I've been a DJ since I was seven years old. <laughs> like, yeah. How many how many kids can put that on there? We'll see how long the interest lasts. Like, she's already waiting, like, oh. Hey, look, once a DJ, always a DJ. Yeah. yeah what are you, were you saying you have to, like, what, put on a weekly show? Yeah. And do the work for it. Nobody does the work for it. You think I do all the work for it? I do. <laughs> no, I do. It's a lot of work. It's actually a lot oh, of work. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of work. Kid. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, she just gets to have fun. Hopefully, that's, that's all. Good. That's fine. No, that's good for her. But, yeah, so our show is Inside the Fishbowl, and that's the Instagram, Inside the Fishbowl Radio mm-hmm. on Instagram. Sometimes you're outside the fishbowl, though, too. But, yes, I don't have an outside the fishbowl Instagram because I don't no. try to manage three Instagrams. <laughs> no, probably not. I said earlier that I was like, nobody wants to hear my show, but now I have three shows on his mm. radio. Isn't that funny how that works out? The half years changes a lot. That's that's called drinking the flavor aid, folks. Yeah, yeah. Except instead of dying in a Guyanan jungle, you end up with three radio shows <laughs> and all the responsibility there within. Cool. Well, uh, so Bob, what was your first exposure to science fiction then? Um, I was just talking to, uh, our very gracious host, poor boy, poor boy of, uh, the soju hour every, every Sunday at four, every Sunday at four. Yeah. You should check that out. It's pretty funny. If you want some sci-fi, that's not sci-fi, but it's going to fuck your brain out. Mm. That. Yes. If you can't afford psychedelics, but want similar effects, check out poor boy Sunday at four soju hour, shady pines radio. But, uh, yeah, that was not my initial introduction to sci-fi. I think it she can't, I'm not sure, like, if it were Star Trek, like, what mm-hmm. really got me interested in sci-fi. Maybe Star Wars. Okay. The original trilogy, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably the first two. And then Star Trek, the next generation, really kind of, like, made me pay attention i'm sorry are you saying you fell off after return or after empire so like return isn't part of like what you you say the first two right the trilogies or the first two of the first trilogy sorry the numbers 
four, four, and five. Right, and I didn't fall off after Jedi. No. Okay, just no. That's not. That's not. Because I'll leave right now. But that's like what's that? What's that? What's that? The thing return it. Hasn't seen return yet. Yeah, I don't think I've seen number one actually fully. Um, I haven't. I don't. I'm pretty sure I've not seen the whole first full. I don't even know what the privilege. <laughs> privilege. Privilege is a good word. Uh, the first one is Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace. Yes, I. And then we have Attack of the Clones, and then Revenge of the Sith. But yes, yeah, so and then we don't. We don't need to talk about seven through nine. Although Rogue One is dope. Rogue One is pretty good. I did enjoy Rogue One. Yes, for sure. Uh, Fantastic. And it shows how much of a diva. I was a Darth Brooks. <laughs> Brooks. Darth, Darth Brooks. What, what is his whole alternate thing? Chris, yeah, Chris Gaines. Yeah, I'll come up with something. But yeah, I think uh, that and then I think the next generation really solidified like, all right, I'm going to be kind of enjoy sci-fi. Yeah. Like as far as visual media is concerned. And I think uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Probably 17 or 18, kind of like really feel like I can get down and get into the dirty with some sci-fi, but I, yeah, definitely not soup. Like, you know, far more. I've listened to your show. Like, you know a lot more than I did. Here's a little secret. It's called Wikipedia knowledge. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's like one in through one ear and out another orifice. No, I, um... I was going to ask, like, grow it because you probably grew up with a lot of reading requirements in school because they don't they don't teach no they don't they don't I went to Chicago Public Schools too. Oh, okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough because they don't make children read anymore. Probably more reading requirements than what is now, but for my contemporaries from outside of Chicago, like in the suburbs. Who I know, yeah, I'm not, I was not required to read as much. Is DJ Chip a reader? She, yeah, in two languages. Nice, yeah, you got to start them early. Yeah, uh, early and often and keep it going because. Yeah, totally. That Yeah, I can attest to that. I uh, recently had to flex my Spanish muscle and it is not fuerte. You know what I mean? Yeah. Same. Or el español no es fuerte. <laughs> it's true. Vonnegut is like, he's super interesting to me because much like Prince, he he's, he's, his name is a symbol. That little like caricature that he draws on everything is very quaint and nice. Oh, you mean the anus? Does it look like an anus? The Vonnegut signature? No, I don't have Oh, no, not, not the Vonnegut signature, but he does have a, a side off where it is an anus um, for a lot of the stuff. Uh, check it out. And I actually used that in my thesis in college, art thesis for education, and I ended it with that, and I got, I was failed. They failed me on my thesis. On an anal technicality? <laughs> Pretty much on an anal technicality. Horrible. <laughs> it sounds horrible. But I, I had uh, used Mulligan as a, a source a few times within, like, my thesis, because it was about art education, and he's a huge... Prepared for arts education, and I don't think they took kindly to me calling them assholes at the end. Do we not? I feel like if I Google search right now, Vonnegut anus, uh, <laughs> first off, oh, sure. Yeah. Well, really, it's just a. It looks like a star. It's an asterisk on steroids. 
or it's an anus. He, he calls it an anus. He does. Sure. Vonnegut has been pretty influential in my learning curve as a human. Man, my cat is a huge Vonnegut fan. <laughs> I didn't realize that. It was just like Vonnegut's number one fan. Just plot to get all over my apartment. He's also a humanist, which I oh. totally agree with. Okay. As far as what is humanism? It, I just like the abridged version, not like the the, abridged, the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica version. Yeah, you fucking you know treat other people how you want to be treated then mm. like you don't have to that's the golden rule what about the platinum rule well you don't have to say god is the reason you're doing it you do it because you do it because you're a human i see okay there is no god telling you to do that you, well there is no god period but right I mean, well that's what humans also kind of believe what's that for boy i mean, Christ. I mean we do have two jesus christ is our lord and savior that's true Jesus, look, he sowed you our Sundays, 4 p.m. Tune in. Praise him. <laughs> Currently, we have two Jesus-looking gentlemen in the room. That's true. Yeah, we are Bokanonist. Is that what the... But yeah, Bokanon. Like, I think that's what Vonnegut... Are we going to start getting into the book here? We are going to get into the book. That was... I am... That's true. I am jumping ahead a little bit because that is a, a legitimate question that I'm going to ask in a little bit. So yeah, but let's let's hold that one on. Let's hold off on that for a little bit. Sure. Well, so I do also like Vonica because he has like lofty sci-fi ideas, but without any real hard science behind it. You know, like Ice Nine just happens to work. Like there's no like sure they're talking about stacking atoms and like if you can reprogram them and what have you. Like yes, that's very cool and somewhat technical, but like for instance, Billy Pilgrim just happens to shift through time in Slaughterhouse Five. Like, there's no 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 explanation. There's no like Asimov at least is like, well, if you leave tungsten out, it's a multi-dimensional rift. Like, and then you can harness the power of it. And my button chops are massive. I think Vonnegut wanted to be a scientist, but he knew he wasn't cut out for it. Mm. What what was Bob Ross before he was a painter? Wasn't he like a government worker or something? Mailman. Mailman, right? I, That's what I, yeah. I, I don't know. I make that up, but you sounds right. Look, follow your true passions, folks. Yeah. Well, he's also only written for every book he writes is for his sister. Mm. Uh, yeah. Is that who he dedicates all the, all the books? Well, that's what, like his target audience is one person, his sister. Oh. And that's. I didn't, I didn't know that or realize that. That's, yeah. that's fun. Yeah, I mean, that makes it easier to be a writer in that sense. Sure. Because you're only writing for one person, not trying to write to please everybody. And if, uh, and if other, right, if other, yeah, if you happen to hit an audience, then great. If not, then, you know, so long as your sister likes it, then. Yeah, I guess this sister has a lot of interesting, uh. Intention. Yeah, fantasist. Fantasies. Science. Factual and and yeah and and Kurt knows just how to pique his sister's interest. All right, yeah, that's that. If he, if Vonnegut were able to do a TED talk today, oh boy, it would be all about how he now solely writes erotic novels for his sister. All right, folks, we're back. Poor boy's over here on the couch doing one leg in, one leg out. Classic maneuver. One up, one down. Yeah. I look great. You look fantastic. I just, I was did it enough for the first time, second time this year, first time in three weeks. Second time this year? This three. Right, no, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Huh, yeah. And then I, I, I felt very, uh, so I've been, I've been ravenously werewolf horny. 
Shout out Werewolf PDX. Yeah. And yeah, and then, so I, was, then I had a rabbit's hunger and I went to try to go to Jack in the Box and I almost ran and ran over somebody. All right. Well, uh, let's do this synopsis real quick. Right. Let's let's learn about what this here novel's all about. It's a good novel. It is a good novel. We do doodly do doodly do doodly do what we must muddly must muddly must muddly must muddly do muddly do muddly do muddly do until we bust bodily bust bodily bust bodily bust. While researching for his upcoming book, the narrator travels to Ilium, New York, the hometown of the late Felix Honecker, a co-creator of the atomic bomb and Nobel laureate physicist to interview Honecker's children, co-workers, and other acquaintances. There he learns of a substance called Ice-9, created for military use by Honecker and now likely in the possession of his three adult children. Which, of course, you give the things that you develop for the government to your children on your deathbed. I thought that was such a funny, like... Well, I, I guess he never did. He never told. He never told the government that he actually created it. I don't think he even gave it to him, though. Oh, I feel like in the end they tossed him. Stolen. They killed him with it. Yeah. Or he accidentally killed himself. But let's go into more of the synopsis. Mm-hmm. Ice nine is an alternative structure of water that is solid at room temperature and acts as a seed crystal upon contact with ordinary liquid water, causing that liquid water to instantly freeze and transform into more ice nine. That's kind of that blockchaining that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, the stacking, the stacking, the atomic rearranging. Among several odd unfoldings in Ilium, the narrator meets Honecker's younger son, a dwarf named Newt, who recounts that his father was doing nothing more than playing the string game Cat's Cradle when the first bomb was dropped, and by first bomb we mean the atomic bomb on Hiroshima during World War II. Right, and uh, Honecker was to help develop the first atomic bomb yeah. in this fictional universe. Right. He would have been right up there with like Oppenheimer in them. Right. Yeah, in the Trinity Project. What you did leave out is that outside oh. does melt at 114.4 degrees. 114.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, also, Hanukkah reminds me of, you ever watched the Fringe television show by J.J. Abrams? No. Highly recommend. Uh, the character Walter Bishop reminds me of what Hanukkah is like, just like that absent-minded mad scientist, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, just... Yeah. The, what, like his only concern is imagining things about science. Right. And, and uh, the military men that came up to him to develop Aizai, mm -hmm. like they had no care about what the it, process was. They were like, just make it. Whatever. Yeah. Like, well, uh, he's, and he told them that it could be made, but I'm not going to make it. Mm. And then he made it on his own. Right. So eventually a magazine assignment takes the narrator, Jonah or John, uh, to the fictional Caribbean island of San Lorenzo, one of the poorest countries on Earth. On the plane ride, the narrator is surprised to see Newt and also meets the newly appointed U.S. ambassador to San Lorenzo, who provides a comprehensive guidebook on San Lorenzo's unusual culture and history. Now, that is a gloss over of probably one of the most important parts of the book structure because it kind of like lays out also that those that who's your couples, the Crosbys. Yeah. Because I know that who's your mom oh yeah 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 because yeah. who's your mom it's definitely yeah it's heidi or whatever her name is helga heidi i don't yeah anyway it was mom it was mom that's right yeah exactly who's your mom but who's your mom 
The guidebook describes a locally influential semi-parody religious movement called Bokanonism, and I always feel like I'm butchering that because I hear Vonnegut say Bokanonism. Right. And now I can't even think of the other way I was saying it earlier that I felt like was wrong. Yeah, well, you just have to have Vonnegut's voice in your head. I did. I, so like like I was saying off air, I listened to the, the book on tape version I listened was narrated by him. He's such a sweet old man. I love him. He's so awesome. The, the beautiful thing about Vonnegut for me is that I can internalize his voice mm. and his cadence and pattern mm. and like all of his like cool like sounds. He, he does his own little sound effects and like I, I need you. He writes them into the stories and every time I've heard him say those like. You can hear him do it while you're reading. Yeah, that's awesome. And it was before it, I even heard him say I got to send you the link on YouTube to the version that I'm listening to because it's... I do want to hear that. It is fantastic. It's it's like, it's from an old record too. You can tell because it has pops and everything. It's it's awesome. Anyway, getting back, uh, the guidebook describes a locally influential semi-parody religious movement called Bokanonism, which combines irreverent, nihilistic, and cynical observations about life and God's will. An emphasis on coincidences and serendipity, and both thoughtful and humorous sayings and rituals in a holy text called the Books of Bokanon. Bokanon, the religion's founder, was a former leader of the island who created Bokanonism as part of a utopian project to give people purpose and community in the face of the island's unsolvable poverty and squalor. And amid a dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which which that typically you know those those things go hand in hand. Yes, uh, more often than not, the the island really did very well for itself for very low time. Not really. No, no, not really. As a deliberate attempt to give Bokanonism an alluring sense of forbidding glamour and hope, the religion is nominally outlawed, which forced Bokanon to live in hiding, quote unquote, in the jungle. The current dictator Papa Manzano threatens all Bokanonists with impalement on a large hook, which sounds pretty metal. The hook. The hook. <laughs> Dude, so, okay. First off, if you're going to hook somebody, you should do it like um, Leatherface style, through the ankles, you know, and then just let them hang there and drain them. But this is through the gut, through the front of the gut, and then out the back. Out the back. Yeah. Oof. That is some medieval shit. They just sit there. Mm. Um, yeah, they just they just either bleed out or pass out from shock, and then hopefully, for their sake, die. I mean, it's a dictatorship right there, right? Like, let's let's rule with iron fist. Or at least appear to. A little foreshadowing there for you folks. Intrigued by Bokanonism, the narrator later deduces the strange reality that nearly all residents of San Lorenzo, even including Papa Manzano himself, practice it in secret. And punishment by the hook is in actually quite rare. That was a quick foreshadowing. Yes. Yeah. That happened twice in the last seven years or something. Like I can't remember what, like, it was not very often, but hopefully they did it for good reason. Maybe violent that one went over my head. Is is more about the capital punishment thing? Like he was he was anti-capital punishment, basically. Other than basically just taking on any trial that basically you were gonna lose. Like if Clarence Darrow was your attorney, you knew you were gonna lose, but he was gonna give a really good argument. 
<laughs> like a good enough argument where you're like, he should win, but also he's going to lose. <laughs> That's uh, so, okay. Yeah, man. The world's best, but worst lawyer. Right, exactly. Like the, the world's best lawyer with the worst track record. Yeah, would be that guy for sure. Uh, covered in flop sweat. Um, on San Lorenzo, the plane passengers are greeted by Papa Manzano, his beautiful adopted daughter, Mona, whom the narrator intensely lusts after after reading an article about her on the plane ride over, and a crowd of some 5,000 San Lorenzans who sing the national anthem... I need to figure out what tune that is because it's uh, to the tune of something else. Home on the range. Is it home on the range? Where the bull and the antelope play. Yes, it is. Amazing. Also, shout out Bill Murray, even though I guess he's kind of an asshole, but his rendition of Hunter S. Thompson in Where the Buffalo Roam that is, is way better than Johnny Depp's in Fear and Loathing. All right. Manzano is ill from cancer and wants his successor to be Frank Honaker. Really glossing over. Manzano's personal bodyguard and coincidentally Felix Honaker's other son uh, and, and the major general of all sciences for the island. He's a model builder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we didn't get into that. So earlier on, like, it's proved that he had his, his background is building very, 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 very detailed Tight models mm. um, that are just amazing. So apparently, that gets according to his mother. <laughs> well, well, no, she died early. Yeah. According to somebody from like the high school, it was a model. Anyway, he was a model builder, and that's why people thought he was a scientist and a glue eater and sniffer. Yes, and lots of acetone. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it comes up in the rubber uh, cups. The smells like something. It's sweet. It has a good nostalgic smell. And then Frank is like, that's acetone. And then the uh, nickel for every time. The American that uh, the bike menu Cros Crosby uh, Crosby is just sucking them down. <laughs> like yeah, I I could see a guy from Chicago feeling the hat and the moon shining basically. <laughs> Not run. Nice. Well, hey, you know, drink them if you got them. However, Frank, uncomfortable with leading or the prospect of leading, uh, confronts the narrator in private and somewhat randomly offers him the presidency. Yeah. <laughs> Just like offhandedly, he's like, hey, so you kind of want to do this instead, person I've never met before? Like, you happen to be writing a book about my father, but that's not the reason why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> More or less, yeah. It's, it's a very awkward situation. And, uh, well, it gets a little more awkward from there. A little bit. Yeah. Startled at first, the narrator grudgingly accepts after he's promised the beautiful Mona for his bride, because we're just trading women now. Yeah. For, it, yeah. Just like, and apparently Mona does not care. No. I don't really understand. Mona's apathy is a point that I need to research a little bit more. Yeah. I, that that also kind of drives me crazy. That's also foreshadowing. The, yeah, the, uh... Maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's foreshadowing, but like how Valiant wrote that is kind of disappointing, like her character, but maybe that is. Well, we'll definitely reveal, we'll reveal her arc here in a minute and kind of elaborate on why that apathy is just like, why? Yeah. Um, but she does not seem to care about taking the hand of just a stranger, right? Anybody. Totally. I guess programming. 
Uh, Newt reiterates the idea that the cat's cradle, of the cat's cradle rather, implying that the game with the invisible cat is an appropriate symbol for nonsense and the meaninglessness of life. Let's talk about that for a second. That is more, I think that's the, literally the core theme of the book. Yeah. yeah. And how Newt thinks about what the cat's cradle is and it being like just a stupid ass game it's not and it preoccupies the mind of a man who created the object that killed hundreds of thousands and while that's occurring he's absent-mindedly just playing a child's game but it's also he was scarred because the first time that he was new came across cat's cradle was the day the bomb was dropped and i think the one of the biggest lies that really drives me crazy is that but not drives me crazy but like interests me is that he's playing this cat's cradle but also Newt's so close to his dad and his dad's so excited to actually finally be playing with him for whatever reason he can empty his but, mind from working on yeah. the bomb yeah but then well no he his mind was all well, blank all but yeah i suppose it was always blank from that sure yeah. but, uh, that's true but newt's his recollection was just seeing like the huge like pores in his face and like how ugly he was and how like all of that and not like the the fun part of it. And you know, maybe he was just like, Oh God, why are you actually playing with me? Right. It was such a foreign concept to him, yeah. of course. Yeah. So maybe that was his issue with the cat's cradle, and then he decided the cat's cradle, although it's a aimless game that like ends at a point because you make a cat's cradle, but it's been like people have been doing it for so long. But for why? What do people do it for? Right. What, yeah, it's just one of those meaningless yeah, things. Like what? Yeah. Like why would somebody even ever try this? And then somebody that has helped annihilate a million people. Right. Like be so interested in this thing. Well, I think he just as absentmindedly interacts with the creation of of a doomsday device as he would with something that is as meaningless as as a cat's cradle. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, that then that's kind of scary, right? But very. But yeah, that that mind is just like up oh, onto the next thing. Like there's no like uh, consideration of consequence. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there are minds like that, and doesn't there certainly are minds like that? Yeah. It it, it is horrifying. That that's why, but it it hits me hard because it's like you can kind of think of it on your own personal level too. Yeah, think it down yourself and like shit. Yeah, man, should I do has consequences. So, before I get on to the next part, would you kill yourself consuming Ice Nine? No, oh, depending on the situation, but no, probably not. I mean, if, it's like it's like swallowing like the like a Mentos on accident. Well, I mean, if I were to go, all right, let's. If you had no other means to commit suicide, can we can we jump on this train or should we wait? For no, we can jump on this train because then it because like the next part the next part I would say like sets in motion the remainder of the book. If I'm jumping on a comet, uh huh, I'm gonna take ice nine over anything. Uh huh. I'm going to Jonestown. Right. I'll take some ice nine. Oh, you don't want that flavor aid? No, I'd want to be dead immediately. Yeah. Okay. Like, there's no pain. There can't be. You're immediately frozen. Yeah. Like, there. How how do you feel pain from your death? If what if you accidentally turn into Mister Doctor Freeze? 
Mr. Freeze, Doctor Freeze from Batman. Oh yeah, yeah. No, uh, if I no, I think Doctor Freeze. I, yeah, I feel like he has a doctorate. <laughs> Wait, but it's Armin Schwarzenegger. Yeah, in being a badass. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, doctorate in badassness. Yeah, he's true. I am. <laughs> I am a doctor. Uh, it's not a tumor. Yeah, no, I would. Yeah, definitely. If I were in a cult, I would. But it's not a cult. It's not a cult. Soon after the bedridden Papa Manzano commits suicide by swallowing Ice Nine, whereupon his corpse instantly turns into solid Ice Nine. So I agree. I would take it if I had to. It's solid, like yeah. instantly ice. Yeah. Why not? Frank Honecker admits that he once gave Monsanto a fragment of Ice-9, and the Honeckers explain that when they were young, their father would give them hints about the existence of Ice-9 while experimenting with it in the kitchen. Because if you were to just drop a little bit of it down the sink on accident, it would turn one droplet, and if that droplet came into contact with other water that streamed into the main water line, the... Well, talk about, talk about jumping ahead. And we and we didn't we didn't even talk about when uh, Jonah goes to talk to Doctor Breed when he goes to the doctor that used to work with Honecker and he's like, well, that, that's how they found he, how he found out about Ice Nine in the yeah. first place. Was, yeah, when he first finds out about yeah. Ice Nine, like how the military. I kind of I I brushed, yeah we brushed right yeah talked about the military yeah we sure did like that's true. Military man asked Honecker, what weapon can we have and to deal with the mud? And, yeah, and Honecker just came up with just made something up not even not even an idea like oh well if we just make it into ice then you wouldn't have to deal with it mm -hmm. but that immediately what i thought like when i heard them talking about that or read them i was like well what happens to the tanks that are caught in the ice yeah, they were saying like it, like it would rise from the bottom up ice-wise and it would push it up out of it. But I was like, that doesn't, that's not how that works. No, that's not how that works. Yeah. That, that, that didn't work. Again, going back to your idea, well, not idea, but your valid uh, skepticism of Vonnegut's understanding of side of science. Yeah, yeah. And plot holes. That was definitely a little bit surefire plot hole. So after their father's death, the three kids... Uh, Newt, Angela. I want to say Angie. Angela seems right. Uh, and uh, and Frank. They all gather chunks of the experiment into thermos flasks and kept them ever since. Festivities for the narrator's presidential inauguration begin, but during an air show performed by San Lorenzo's fighter planes, one of the planes malfunctions and crashes into the Seaside Palace, causing Monsanto's still frozen body to fall into the sea. <laughs> the, one of the best plot turns of all time. It's so fucking awesome. <laughs> fucking hilarious. Yeah. Okay. As <laughs> are done cleaning up, like, so there was a nighttime outbreak right before this whole thing. And then they, like, right. go towards this whole place, clean everything up, then put this body that's ice mine in the boat, right? Mm hmm. And they were going to light it on fire, so it reaches 114.4. But before they can do that, they have this military show. Oh, yeah. Bullshit. Right. Another one of my favorite Vonnegut tropes is, like, fucking military is bullshit, and it's only going to kill us. Right. And... Yeah, he makes some pretty strong statements about the military-industrial complex and the way that we, like, you know, value the military in our society. To the earlier, 
the only reason that Ice Idol was even conceived of is because some military men wanted to get tanks out of the mud. Right. And this crazy, like, whatever dude was like, well, I we tried out Comic Bomb and I, like, blew up, you know, your Sea uh, maybe I can do this. Yeah, this thing, and it, why not just try to make it? But you know, sometimes the smartest people are the most careless. Honestly, that's true. Maybe that's kind of the point. Yeah. Well, they can get away with being quote unquote careless. Yeah. But, you know, careless to a like that's at what point does carelessness become like intentional? Right. And you know, that, and that it's malicious. Yeah. Bobby gets taught, and he was, you know, baby up the uh, Great Depression. Yeah. Went to, he was in World War II. Yep. Spent time in Dresden. Yeah. During the bombing. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole thing behind Slaughterhouse, yeah. Right. But, you know, a lot of his stuff goes back to the military complex. Could be seized the bullshit about the military. Yeah, well, much, much like this, you know, like, it starts off with like one premise insofar as like he starts off slaughterhouse like i wrote i set out to write a book about dresden mm-hmm. and then like that kind of frames the whole or at least the four that i read in relation to this and then this has to do with how guy wants to you know the day the world ended or wh- was that what it was yeah the day the world ended yeah but yeah I wonder what poor boy's dreaming of right now, because he looks so peaceful over there. I really hope he's dreaming of bite-buying dreams. I wonder if he's dreaming about the Shady Pines fundraiser. I think he's dreaming about what he's going to be doing tomorrow. Mm. I think he's going to be bodyguard, not bodyguard, uh, doorman for the show. Nice. And he's dreaming about how many beautiful ladies he's going to say hi to. Oh. And then just... We'll never see again. <laughs> so it goes. After Manzano's still frozen body falls into the sea, uh, instantly all the water in the world seas, rivers, and groundwater transforms into solid ice nine. And, and that instantaneous thing, like there, like imagine, like we're just you're just going home from work, and then all of a sudden, like all of society breaks down because everything starts ice. Ice, yeah, sucks. Uh, the freezing of the world's oceans immediately causes violent tornadoes to ravage the Earth, but the narrator manages to escape with Mona to a secret bunker beneath the palace. Fuck bunker. <laughs> I mean, that would be awesome. But then she was quite beautiful from the... Uh, all accounts, yeah. From all accounts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't sound like they really... Did much of anything, yeah. Of anything. Nope. She was not into making babies. No. When the initial storms subside after several days, they emerge and, well... There was still a storm going on. Yeah. Yeah, it was, but not as... But not, not, not as bad. Yeah, not as bad. I think it was like, yeah, three days or five days, I can't remember offhand, but yeah. Exploring the island for survivors, they discovered a mass grave where all their surviving San Lorenzans committed suicide by touching Ice Nine from the landscape to their mouths on the facetious advice of Bokanon, who has left a note of explanation. And then Mona, upon seeing all of her dead compatriots, yeah, all of her country peoples, and it doesn't seem like dude tries to stop her. Nope. 
No. Okay. Kind of, but Mona is such a tragic character. Yeah, like that. It's it's just depressing how she's written. Because yeah, I don't know if that's what his point was with that character. Like that's my biggest fault. She was um, she was sexualized. She was marginalized, and then ultimately, yeah. like it, it, yeah, just I suppose caricaturizing the way that women are treated yeah. in certain yeah, I mean, baby situations. Yeah, probably written pretty well then. Like that, I. Yeah, I talk about tropes insofar as that, like, you know, the, that character arc of the, you know, women are seen, not heard kind of, like, role in a patriarchy, which is... She doesn't really say anything. Pervaded society. No, right, yeah. She just, no. like, picks it up. Just like, well, this is the fate of my people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, we, we've already gone through all the squalor like perhaps even it is a release from you know how things the shittiest island on like the on the planet um the planet yeah yeah it didn't force nation on the planet i think is what they it didn't seem like a shitty island because it seemed like right they had you know an island but i don't know i mean it seems allegorical to cuba i don't know when was this written do, 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 yeah, do, I mean, still, to 63. 63, shit. Yeah. So that's right up right up in the Cuban Revolution. That's 64 was... Uh, well, the, no, the Cuban Revolution was late 50s. But Cuban Missile Crisis was... Yeah. 62? 60... Yeah, I think it was a 60... Yeah, 62. The... Um, Kennedy was capped in 63, I want to say, November of 63. Uh, November 22nd, 1963, you're right. So, 62, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is definitely, you're right. Yeah, right in the wheelhouse. Yeah, that, there was definitely that, I think, then, yeah, thank you for putting that historical lens on this whole book. Well, I will have to verify that, but just uh, contemporarily, it certainly fits the, you know, like the theme, yeah. if you will. Pretty and, and then satirizes it in a very funny way, just because, yeah. like, the whole sequence of events is so absurd. Yeah, it's not science science fiction, and I'm sorry to bring a... No, no, that's okay. I thought is sci-fi. That's the only aspect of it that could be sci-fi, but... Because I don't think that could ever exist. You know, I think that the... we Okay, well, let me put it to you this way. We're able to make different, like, renditions of plastics, right? Like, you can you can restack the atoms of plastics to make them harder, softer, thinner. Yeah, but those are dead animals. I think water is living. Well, it's molecular structure, though. Like, I, I mean, they're... Neither am I. So this <laughs> this is not this is uh, you know I can't truly speak to like you know the molecular science of water, but I will say this: ice freezes in a, in a lot of different ways and in different um, you know circumstance. Right. So I wouldn't be shocked to learn that something like ice nine could happen. Could happen not instantly in the way that. Because, like, right. j- just, like, in the same way, the fear that they had when they dropped the nuclear bomb, that it would just, like, continue to go indefinitely and, like, consume the whole planet. Or that if, like, when they collide atoms in the Large Hadron Collider, that they're going to create a black hole that's going to consume the Earth and the solar system. I mean, it could happen. Could probably not going to happen. I don't think we're that smart. So, uh, wrapping things up, 
the horrified narrator is discovered by a few other survivors, including Newton Frake Honecker, and he lives with them in a cave for several months, during which time he writes the contents of the book, because what else are you going to do? Write a fucking book. Write a fucking book. Look at Frank, yeah, all the, the Honecker boys. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, yeah, Frank, but then the other two... The, oh, the Crosbys? Yeah, the Crosbys were there, right? Because <laughs> Cros- the... They got for hosiers. Yeah, dude, dude Crosby is a cook. Um, old, uh, mom is, like, not really... Th- I want to say it's Heidi. To, yeah, to Heidi. Uh, it could be Hilda. Hilda? I, I don't remember. Hildy? But, uh, toward the end, he's just I'm calling her mom. Mm-hmm. And that kind of drives me nuts, too. I'm like, fuck. It's a very Midwest thing to do. Now you have a new mom. <laughs> and <laughs> she lost the love of your life. And now you're going to call this other taken woman who is like 30 years your senior mom. Hey, call her stepmom. There's a future in that. Well, no, all the society's broken down. There's, and there was no internet then. No, there's no future. No. <laughs> well... In the near future, driving through the barren wasteland one day, he spots Bokanon himself, who is contemplating what the last words of the books of Bokanon should be. Bokanon states that if he were younger, he would place a book about human stupidity on the peak of San Lorenzo's highest mountain, swallow Ice Nine, and die while thumbing his nose at God. Yeah. Oh, a very sorry people, yes, did I find here. Oh, they had no music and they had no beer. And oh, everywhere where they tried to perch belonged to Castle Sugar Incorporated or the Catholic Church. Well, his his story was vague because, like, the only real insight that we have was an article that was written in a Florida, like, periodical about a a prank. Yeah, he was just on a boat, on his, like, mm-hmm. off the coast of of Cuba, which is it is a place that actually exists in this universe. And, like, San Lorenzo is the only fictional place. Like, everywhere else is normal. But, um, yeah, he basically, like, comes ashore. They they bo- they all crash land. Yeah. Like, like, Bokanon and his... Every, uh, yeah, everybody just happens upon the side. Right, exactly, yeah. Maybe. And, and it is mystical in that sense as well, right? Like, when you're there, you're so much cut off from the outside world, but the events there affect the entirety of the world. Right. I, think. I wonder if there's a book of Bokanon or like you could put together, like somebody put together any phraseology or like it's, if any Bokanonism is referenced in other Vonnegut novels, much like how, um, oh, what's his name? You mentioned him earlier. From Kilgore Trout. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bokanonism, maybe. And like I was thinking Vonnegut was making a reference to the people of Biafra, which are people in outside of Nigeria in Africa that were just, you know, they were trying to start their own thing, and the American government fucking blew them up. Mm. Kind of like what they are trying to do with Cuba, and maybe that's why he wrote this book, because it was like, this is a fucking thing that's happening again. More historical context, yeah. yeah. I mean, he always wrote through a historical, historically contextual lens. So. Yeah. yeah. I think most of my favorite authors kind do of so. do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah they, they lend from things that we can actually, like, draw parallels and allegories to. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, the other book we were going to, I wanted to talk about was... Uh, Mark Twain and the uh, Connecticut, oh uh, yeah, uh, Yankee and in uh, King Arthur's Court. Uh, yeah, Connecticut Yankee and yeah, Court. Yeah, yeah, very similar book, honestly. 
Yeah, insofar as that like a science fiction uh, element exists. Well, there's a big ass dumb guy, and then there's like, oh, the uh, I guess the roles are reversed, but yeah. So it's like a reverse of mice and men. Yeah, <laughs> more than yeah. No. We have mice and men in this one, and then uh, Connecticut Yankee is the reverse of mice and men. One. Yeah. So are you a Bocanonis? Because rumor has it that perhaps in secret. When you're not on the air, um, I do not think Bokanon is a cult at all. Mm-hmm. But I also think Bokanon holds some shady puns, radio um, ideologies, some lieutenants. Yeah, totally. The heart. Uh, sure. Now let's take care of each other. Let's be. We didn't really go over like what a lot of what. Bokanon represents. Or no, let's get into it. But yeah, no, I think Bokanonism is more or less humanism, you know. Sure. Yeah. Don't be a fucking asshole to somebody. Um, they, they, Bokanonism definitely do. They do press their palms and their feet together to have a, a soul connection. Sure. Uh, Who doesn't from time to time? What? We're we're sitting, looking each other in the eyes, both palms and feet, like the mics are just hovering between us. Yeah. This whole conversation we've not moved once. No, no, no souls. Actually, our souls are... No, no. Oh, they're the yeah. same... Got, well, actually, no, they're... Opposite. Totally opposite. Yeah. Oh, no. Maybe we have touch souls. <laughs> Maybe. Swap so, Here we go. There it is. Ooh, nice. Oh, you, you got big feet. Do you, you got 13s? Uh, twelves. Really? Yeah. It's twelves. I got no. I got little six foot five man feet. No, what are you talking about? Those are big feet. I'm six foot six, these are thirteens. Yeah, I got I'm six five and I got twelve. I got an inch and a shoe and a shoe size on you. <laughs> um, but that's okay. But both of is really like it's just it's like shit, man, don't be an asshole. Like it's, I think what probably get put into Bokanism was what he was believed humanism was mm. you know which is i think we went over yeah we did yeah we did a bit yeah uh, i mean it's it's an interesting i almost want to call it like thought exercise because because like there is no god in bokanonism no like like flipping the at the very end bokanon flipping the finger to the Scott quote unquote God, yeah, yeah. It's it's more like to the situation at hand or the universe or the circumstance that we find ourselves in that led to yeah. like the climax of the story, yeah. But yeah, I'd like to not hold something as your yeah. That's the cult of shady pies. Like <laughs> we we. I thought it wasn't a cult. No, we're not. No, not a cult. Sorry. No, <laughs> come on. We got to stay on brand, man. Uh, but yeah, on brand, on brand, yeah, <laughs> brands, cults. <laughs> I said all brand, <laughs> all brand. Oh shit, we have to stay all brand. Yeah, all brand diets. Remember that stuff, and then all wear burlap sacks. Not a cult. Yeah, not a cult. No, it reminds me. So the whole Boganonism ideology reminds me of the end of the meaning of life, Monty Python. Oh, always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. 
It has that vibe. You know what I mean? Where it's like life is a piece of shit when you look at it. Yeah. So I would love to see like a little Bokanon pamphlet with like coconut skin flaps or whatever. <laughs> but it's also like, I mean, it's coconuts have skin, right? It's only worth living a life like realize, yeah, life's a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the only one we got. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's make use of it. Yeah. Make friends and fucking enjoy yeah. what you're doing. That's Join, what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I'm enjoying this too. This is fun. This has been fun. Okay, so uh, Shady Pines Radio is fund, ra fun emphasis on raising because it takes not only a village to make all of this happen. That, that was that, that is um that's how we subliminally get people to subscribe and donate to the patreon fundraiser fundraiser go to the events so how long have you been uh doing science factual here it this is episode 66 i've done a yeah. si 66 consecutive weeks in a row solid fucking year plus yeah that's yeah good yeah like a year and three yeah a year and two months yeah three months yeah, so uh, thank you for being here, and you are thank you. the reason that we need the fundraiser. Yeah, no, it's true. Keep me on the air, everybody, please. Keep me on the air. Keep DJ Bob Fish on the air. Yeah, me for God's sake, keep Poor Boy on the air. If nobody else keep Poor Boy on the air. Seriously, we'll just put him on 24 hours a day. <laughs> I'll just rerun, like, I actually, I just listened to the first episode of Sergio <laughs> Hour. And God, what is radio? I don't know anymore. No one knows. But you can listen to radio 24 hours a day, eight days a week, 369 days a year on ShadyPinesRadio.com or download the free Shady Pines Radio app for Android and iOS. Do that because then you can get in the chat room super easy from your phone and chat room with the people that are putting on the shows. Chat with us. Chat with me Tuesday mornings from eight to nine. Drive time hour. Just drive with your knees and chat with me. I will. I will chat with you. Yeah, and the fundraiser really helps us to make sure that we can maintain these fucking things. Hell yeah, free. No, no, it is not free. We're talking. We're talking licensing. We're talking being able to do all the fun festivals and stuff that we do. Yeah. Talking about merch and stickers and other cool things. Honestly, if you look at other radio stations, they're looking at like a hundred thousand dollars. We made twenty thousand dollars just to keep this thing running. So we just need one person to give us twenty thousand dollars. That actually would be fucking awesome. You, you could write it off if you wanted, and you could. Yeah, it'd be a huge write-off. Yeah, we, we are nonprofit. Yeah, we could do five hundred one c three status now. Story. Just give us ten thousand dollars and match every. Other donation. Yeah, every other donation, then that would be so cool. Actually, I'd be the coolest thing of all time, actually. So we are a nonprofit. I don't know how matching donations work or any of that. I will touch tips with you. If you donate $10,000, I will publicly touch tips with you. Uh, I will uh, also put it. You want to get in on that? Oh, touch tips. Nice. Oh, tight. So you, well, you gotta pay well, to, I will. I, you gotta pay to play, baby. Pay to play. ShadyPinesRadio.com. So do you. So thank you so much for uh, listening. Yeah, and thank you, Bob, for joining me and bringing Cat's Cradle to the table, man. It was oh, fun. Beautiful time. Thanks so much. I want to be on again. With, yeah. Uh, more, maybe in like two years. <laughs> sure, we'll get you back in the rotation. You scamp.
Hey Shady Pines Radio listener, it's that time. The bills are due, so let's have some fun and raise funds with our February Fundraiser. We're kicking off the week with a party. February 11th, Saturday night from 7 to midnight at the top floor of Urbanite, located at 1005 Southeast Grand, free parking in the back, with performances by Left on 10th, Wood Butcher, and Sad Boy Union. Then, on February 14th, we're having an open mic night at Oakshire Beer Hall, where we invite you to come and play for us and your loved ones on Valentine's Day. And 10% of all food sales and a dollar out of every pint sold goes to Shady Pines as part of the Oakshire Inspires program for nonprofits. And then listen in on the evening of February 17th from 5 to midnight as our Friday night DJs and friends do a live telethon. We have no idea what we're doing, but I bet it'll be fun. But all funning aside, we really can't make ShadyPinesRadio.com with its 24-7 schedule of music, free app, and upcoming events happen without your donations. So please, show us some love, give us some cash. We love donations any time of the year, but from February 11th through the 19th, your donation could win you amazing prizes graciously given by local businesses, bands, and friends of ShadyPinesRadio.com. For every $10 you donate, you'll receive one pine coin, and that's your virtual raffle ticket. The more pine cones you get, the more chances to win. And your donation goes towards paying for music licensing, web and streaming services, app upkeep, and seed money for fun stuff like festivals and hired services that we use throughout the year. Go to ShadyPinesRadio.com slash donate or just click on the word donate found at the top of our webpage for more info on all the great prizes that you can win with your donation when given from February 11th through the 19th. So let your friends know. Share us on your social media. Thanks for your continued support, and thanks for listening. Shady Pines Radio. Oh, yeah, fundraiser in full effect. Love to see it, and I know 2023 is going to be a super awesome year for Shady Pines. Thanks to y'all. Okay, how's about this week's water cooler facts? Water. We all know it and love it, as we should. We're mostly made up of it. Something like 60% averaged out. Plus, there will likely be wars over it, so sign your rights away to Nestle now while you're still worth something to the machine. We also know that dihydrogen monoxide can exist as the three states of inorganic matter, that's liquids, solids, and vapors, but what is the actual viability of a concept like ICE-9? Here's a quick refresher on what ICE-9 is from Dr. Breed, Felix Honecker's former research fellow. Dr. Breed made an appointment with me for early the next morning. He would pick me up at my hotel. On his way to work, he said, thus simplifying my entry into the heavily guarded research laboratory. Breed was a pink old man, very prosperous, beautifully dressed. His manner was civilized, optimistic, capable, serene. I, by contrast, felt bristly, diseased, cynical. We climbed the four granite steps before the research laboratory. 
The building itself was of unadorned brick and rose six stories. We passed between two heavily armed guards at the entrance. I smiled at one of the guards. He did not smile back. There was nothing funny about national security, nothing at all. When we got to Dr. Breed's inner office, I started to ask Dr. Breed questions about the day of the bomb. I'm sick of people misunderstanding what a scientist is, what a scientist does, he said. I'll do my best to clear up the misunderstanding, I said. In this country, he said, most people don't even understand what pure research is. I'd appreciate it if you'd tell me what it is. It isn't looking for a better cigarette filter or a softer face tissue or a longer lasting house paint. God help us. Everybody talks about research and practically nobody in the country is doing it. We're one of the few companies that actually hires men to do pure research. When most other companies brag about their research, they're talking about industrial hack technicians who wear white coats, work out of cookbooks, and dream up an improved windshield wiper or next year's Oldsmobile. But here I asked him, here and shockingly few other places in this country, men are paid to increase knowledge, to work to no end but that. I said to him, that's very generous of General Forge and Foundry Company. Nothing generous about it, he said. New knowledge is the most valuable commodity on earth. The more truth we have to work with, the richer we become. Had I been a Baconanist then, that statement would have made me howl. Do you mean, I said to Dr. Breed, that nobody in this laboratory is ever told what to work on? Nobody even suggests what they work on? Oh, people suggest things all the time. But it isn't in the nature of a pure research man to pay any attention to suggestions. His head is full of projects of his own, and that's the way we want it. Did anybody ever try to suggest projects to Dr. Honecker, I said? Certainly, he said, admirals and generals in particular. They looked upon him as a sort of magician who could make America invincible with a wave of his wand. I remember shortly before Felix died, there was a marine general who was hounding him to do something about mud. Mud, I said? The Marines, after almost 200 years of wallowing in mud, were sick of it, said Dr. Breed. The general, as their spokesman, felt that one of the aspects of progress should be that Marines no longer had to fight in mud. What did the general have in mind? The absence of mud, said Dr. Breed. No more mud. And what did Dr. Honecker say? In his playful way, and all his ways were playful, Felix suggested that there might be a single grain of something, even a microscopic grain, that could make infinite expanses of muck, marsh, swamp, creeks, pools, quicksand, and mire as solid as this desk. Dr. Breed banged his speckled old fist on the desk. The desk was a kidney-shaped, sea-green steel affair. One Marine could carry more than enough of the stuff to free an armor division bogged down in the Everglades. According to Felix, one Marine could carry enough of the stuff to do that under the nail of his little finger. That's impossible, I said. He was able to explain it to me, said Dr. Breed, and I'm sure that I can explain it to you. There are several ways, Dr. Breed said to me, in which certain liquids can crystallize, can freeze. Several ways in which their atoms can stack and lock in an orderly, rigid way. That old man with spotted hands invited me to think of the several ways in which cannonballs might be stacked on a courthouse lawn, or the several ways in which oranges might be packed into a crate. And he helped me to see that the pattern of the bottom layers of the cannonballs, or of oranges, determined how each subsequent layer would stack and lock. 
The bottom layer is the seed of how every cannonball or every orange that comes after is going to behave, even to an infinite number of cannonballs and oranges. Now suppose, chortled Dr. Breed, enjoying himself, that there were many possible ways in which water could crystallize, could freeze. Suppose that the sort of ice we skate upon and put into highballs, what we might call ice one, is only one of several types of ice. Suppose water always froze as ice one on Earth because it had never had a seed to teach it how to form ice two, ice three, ice four. And suppose, and he rapped on his desk with his old hand again, that there were one form which we will call ice nine, a crystal as hard as this desk with a melting point of, oh, let us say 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or better still, a melting point of 130 degrees. That old man asked me to think of United States Marines in a godforsaken swamp. Their trucks and tanks and howitzers are wallowing, he complained, sinking in stinking miasma and ooze. He raised a finger and winked at me. But suppose, young man, that one Marine had with him a tiny capsule containing a seed of ice nine, a new way for the atoms of water to stack and lock, to freeze. If that Marine threw that seed into the nearest puddle, the puddle would freeze, I guessed, and all the muck around the puddle, he said, it would freeze. And all the puddles in the frozen muck, he said, they would freeze. And the pools and streams in the frozen muck, he said, they would freeze. You bet they would, he cried. And the United States Marines would rise from the swamp and march on. There is such stuff, I asked. No, 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 said Dr. Breed, losing patience with me again. I only told you all this in order to give you some insight into the extraordinary novelty of the ways in which Felix was likely to approach an old problem. What I've just told you is what he told a marine general who was hounding him about mud. Felix ate alone here in the cafeteria every day. It was a rule that no one was to sit with him to interrupt his chain of thought. But the marine general barged in, pulled up a chair, and started talking about mud. What I've told you was Felix's offhand reply. There, there really isn't such a thing, I said. I just told you there wasn't, cried Dr. Breed hotly. Felix died shortly after that, and if you'd been listening to what I've been trying to tell you about pure research men, you wouldn't ask such a question. Pure research men work on what fascinates them, not on what fascinates other people. I keep thinking about that swamp, I said. Well, you can stop thinking about it. I've made the only point I wanted to make with that swamp. If the streams flowing through the swamp froze as ice nine, I said, what about the rivers and the lakes? The streams fed. They'd freeze, but there is no such thing as ice nine. And the oceans, the frozen rivers fed? They'd freeze, of course, he snapped. I suppose you're going to rush to market with a sensational story about ice nine now. I tell you again, it does not exist. And the springs feeding the frozen lakes and streams, I said, and all the water underground feeding the springs? They'd freeze, damn it, he cried. But if I'd known you were a member of the yellow press, I wouldn't have wasted a minute with you. And the rain, I said, when it fell, it would freeze into hard little hobnails of ice nine. And that would be the end of the world and the end of the interview, too. Goodbye. Dr. Breed was mistaken about at least one thing. There was such a thing as ice nine. And ice nine was on Earth. Ice Nine was the last gift Felix Honecker created for mankind before going to his just reward.
if you've taken any rudimentary science course, it's likely that you're saying, yeah, okay, that sounds all nice in theory, but is it possible that something like Ice-9 exists? Turns out, yeah, it does. But not in the way Vonnegut portrays it in the novel. Apparently, there are a lot of different types of ice. However, there are very few rare circumstances where water ice forms in temperatures above zero degrees Fahrenheit. Black ice on asphalt is an example, but you need pressure and low temperatures. Ice 1 will turn into ice 2 if you apply enough pressure, with oxygen atoms arranged in a rhomboid shape. Keep increasing the pressure and you'll get ice 3, ice 4, ice 5, ice 6, and so on. Some form of ice is theoretically possible at even crazy high temperatures of hundreds of degrees Celsius, provided the pressure is high enough. Typically, the higher the pressure, the higher the temperature. Ice 9 is a form of solid water stable at temperatures below 140 degrees Kelvin or negative 133.15 degrees centigrade and pressures between 200 and 400 megapascals. It has a tetragonal crystal lattice and a density of 1.16 grams per centimeter cubed, 26% higher than ordinary ice. It is formed by cooling ice 3 from 208 degrees Kelvin to 165 degrees Kelvin rapidly in order to avoid forming into ice 2. Its structure is identical to ice 3 other than being hydrogen ordered. Fortunately for Earth, Ice-9 as it exists in the novel does not exist in reality, but there is an exotic form of ice dubbed Ice-7 that physicists can create in the laboratory. It's harmless in terrestrial conditions, but on an ocean world like Jupiter's moon Europa, it could behave just like Ice-9 under the right conditions, freezing an entire world within hours. But to infer that the molecular structure of liquid water can be somehow instantly transformed into its solid state here on Earth without a drastic shift in ambient temperature is to infer the impossible. For now. But until we adopt cartoon rules for physics, we might just have to settle for trudging through the mud in the meantime. I'd like to thank my sources for this week's episode, including ArsTechnica.com, InquiriesJournal.com, Powell's for supplying the novel, and of course, Wikipedia, because if it's on Wikipedia, it was probably dreamt up by some scientists you've never heard of, but is likely super important. Next week's episode is a first for Science Factual, as we'll be taking a look at a director in particular. In this case, Jordan Peele, who has put out some of the best horror thriller movies in recent years, like Us and Get Out. But we'll be looking largely at Nope, being that it has more of a sci-fi angle than his other films. Joining us is guest comedian, the very funny Julian Gray. We met up at Growler's Tap Room on Southeast 82nd right after the Tap That Comedy Showcase that takes place there every Saturday night at 9pm. The open mic follows the show, hosted by Ben Levy. You can catch that episode airing Tuesday, February 21st from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Download the free Shady Pines Radio app for awesome content from amazing folks 24-7-369 by visiting us online at ShadyPinesRadio.com or by downloading the free Shady Pines Radio app. Speaking of Shady Pines, we just wrapped our third annual fundraiser, and thanks to all of you listeners and supporters out there, we hit our operational budget goal for the year. That means you'll continue to hear that awesome content, attend the various shows and Shady Pines radio happenings about town throughout the year, and dare I say attend the Shady Pines festival? But we'll get to that when it isn't still snowing outside.
If you're looking to tickle your funny bone here in Portland, check out LaughsPDX.com for up-to-date information on comedy shows and open mics throughout the city. We've got comedians slinging jokes every night of the week, so make sure to bookmark LaughsPDX.com for all of your comedy needs right here in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Well, my fellow nerds, it's about time we wrap this thing up because the Ice Nine is creeping in through the windows and into my very soul. So, live long and prosper, my friends, while we still can. <laughs>